Well, good morning again. And I hope that you'll be with us next week as we start Road Trip. I can especially tell you, if you're a person who's going through what you would call a season of transition in life, uh, or you feel like you're going through some road bumps in the journey of life, this is going to be an incredible series. You're going to want to make sure that you're here for it. But uh, this is a week where we're just going to take uh, one week and focus. Uh, actually, we're just going to focus on one verse. Uh, and I want to talk to you about something that God's been uh, sharing with me, and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful for you as well. And kind of this whole idea came to me or hit me uh, the other day when I walked through Barnes & Noble. Um, I don't often shop there, but I was given a gift card to Barnes & Noble, so I went over there and I started looking through the shelves, and, and uh, I was walking through the store, and I got to the back side there, right back by the little uh, coffee area, you know, they have, and they have these little tables set up there where people read the books before they buy them. I guess it's kind of like the test drive area, right? And um, so I noticed, though, what was interesting was I, I, I kind of was, uh, you know, I was being nosy. I was paying attention to the titles of the books people were reading. And what I noticed was that very few of those people were reading for pleasure. I mean, there, it wasn't like people were sitting there reading novels or, or mysteries. It was like, you know, one person I, I, I looked at, that he was just buried in these test prep books for the MCAT, which I suppose must be a pretty difficult test because the books were about this thick, right? And he had this terrified look on his face every time he turned a page, right? So I figured this must be some really deep stuff. I mean, he's got this stack of books and he's going through it. It looked like he'd probably been there since about 6 o'clock in the morning. He had 10 coffee cups all around, you know. And uh, poor guy, I thought, man, just buy the books and go home. But um, then the next person I saw had a book in front of him that said, publish your novel in 90 days. You know, he's reading through that. And uh, the next person I, I saw had a, a computer book, right? And it was, I can't remember, it was like internet hacking for dummies, something like that. And, and I thought, I'm staying way away from this guy. I have no idea what he has in mind, but I don't need him to even see my face, right? I'm going to, I'd like to keep my identity, thank you very much. But... And then the next person, this was the best of all, I thought, was they had a, a book and it said a healthier you and said diet and exercise secrets inside, you know. And then below that, you could tell he was also going to read this other book and it said anyone can be a pastry chef, right? <laughs> so I thought he's going to have to come to a critical moment of decision pretty soon. And it'll be interesting to see how it all goes down. But it was interesting to me because as I looked at these individuals and the books that they were reading, what dawned on me is that all of these people were reading about how to have a better life. They, they had all gotten books that, that represented something that they felt was missing in their life. They were wanting to take their life to the next level. And I can totally relate to that. Because that's the kind of person I am. I don't want to live a stagnant life. I always want to find the next thing. My wife can attest to this. I cannot take on a project, finish it, and go, that was awesome, now it's time to coast for a while. It never works that way for me. I take on a project, and before I even get that one finished, I'm already looking for the next project to take on. I always want to find something better. I always want to do the next thing. I mean, even when I was a teenager... Um, I, I, was, I was homeschooled for a lot of the time that I was a teenager, and I... I literally got my first job at 14. I was probably working more hours than you're supposed to work at 14. I have no idea, right? But I was always looking for the next trade. I wanted people to teach me how to do things. I wanted to learn how to do things. I was always looking for the next big thing. So I can relate to people who say, I want better. I want better in my life. I want to take things to the next level. Maybe you can relate to that too. As a matter of fact, it could be that as you sit in this room, there is something in your mind that you think, if I could just achieve this or accomplish this or obtain this, my life would be better. Maybe you think to yourself, if I could just get the right degree, 
if I could just get into the right program, if I could just get the right training, if I could just hang up the right diploma on my wall, my life would be better. Or if I could just receive this specific accolade at work, if I could receive this specific uh, job description, this specific title, if I could just get to that level in my company or this level in another company, then I, I would really feel like my life was better than it is now. Or maybe it has something to do with maybe like a possession. Maybe when you drive past the luxury car dealership, you know, you see all those glistening, gleaming, beautiful cars, and you think to yourself, someday, someday I'll have what it takes to get one of those, and my life will be better, right? Or you drive past the beautiful neighborhood, right, with the beautifully manicured lawns and all the beautiful people jogging around, you know, and you think to yourself, someday, right, I'm going to live there. I'm going to live in a place like that, and then my life will be better. But here's my question for you. No matter what it is, if you go to your, to your brain for a second and think, what is it that I think would make my life better? My question for you is this, will it really get you there? Will it really get you there if you get what you think would make your life better? And I, I, there's a reason that I ask this question, because in Barnes & Noble, as I'm kind of walking through, and I've got this on my mind. All these people, they're like me. They just want to have a better life. I totally get that. I, 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 you know, I, I kind of set that thought aside for a moment, went towards the biography section. I always love looking at biographies. And I always love reading the stories of very successful people. I started to take the books off the shelf of people who had incredible careers, people who had incredible charisma, people who had political position, people who had riches. I started looking at, at stories of their life. And what I kept noticing was that at some point in the book, it was very obvious that a lot of times, even late in life for these people, they would hit a wall. And the wall that they would hit was the desire to have a better life than what they had. Now think about this. That all the money, all the, all the, all the, all the accolades that you might want, all the fame that you might want, and yet, they're hitting the wall. And they're at the same place going, I just want a better life. I want something that will provide a better life. And so, when I look at that, I think to myself, if, if, if money's not enough, and success is not enough, and power is not enough, if none of those things put better within reach, where does it end? Where does it end? Where, how, how does a person really get their hands on better? And in my life at 32 years old, already, I mean, I'm still young, but already, I don't want to look back on my life and feel like I left better on the table. I don't want to look back at my life and say, I could have done better with what I had. Now, truly, if I were to get into a severe moment of internal angst about that, I might be able to label it a midlife crisis and wrangle a red sports car out of the deal, right? But I'm still not sure that would really help me. So how do I get my hands on better? And we're going to talk about a verse that unpacks this thought, and it'll be a quick talk this morning, and then we'll move on. Psalm 84 is where we're at, verse 10. It's a familiar verse for many of us. A lot of us have sung songs based on this verse. It says, better, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It truly means than a thousand days anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper or a gatekeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand days anywhere else. I would rather be your doorman, God, than to live the high life in the house of the wicked. Now, we get this verse 
in the book, uh, the, there's a book in the Bible called the book of Psalms. It means the book of songs, right? It's a book of, of poetry mostly, written mostly by David, but also by some other writers that, that, are, that are songs that were written to be sung to God mostly, right? And so I'm, I'm just going to be really blatantly honest with you, okay? Confession is good for the soul, or so I'm told. And so I'm just going to tell you right now, I have undervalued and underestimated and underutilized the book of Psalms in my life up until this point. Now, some of y'all are looking at me and you're thinking, I cannot believe you, Jonathan. Some of y'all, you're really familiar with your Bible and you love the book of Psalms and you spend a lot of time in the book of Psalms and it just really blesses you and speaks to your heart and you're thinking, Jonathan, you're crazy and I probably am, but I'm not a real poetry kind of guy, right? So, you know, I, I, like, I like bottom line kind of stuff. I, w- I want you to give me the bottom line. I also like stories, so I read in the Old Testament, read stories and read stories in the New Testament. But I would get into the book of Psalms and I'd get bogged down. And I'll, can I just be really honest with you? I'm totally just going to lay it out there for you and tell you that one of the biggest problems I have with the book of Psalms is I felt like the author of Psalms is telling God things God already knows. I mean, okay, there's a lot of psalms where, where, where David or the psalmist is saying, God, help me out, I'm in trouble. God, I'm going through this issue. Or God, I want to tell you how great you are. But then there's also all these psalms where, where, where David or the psalmist is saying, God, you are good. Well, God already knows he's good. You know? or, or God, your mercy endures forever. Well, God already knows his mercy endures forever. And I start reading that and I think, you know, you're already, this is redundant. You're telling God things he already knows. And so I would look at, at a verse like this, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, and I think, well, you know, that's a good observation, but God already knows that. And then it hit me as I was studying for this message this week. When you, when you come to New Spring and you participate in the song service, in the worship service, and you sing songs to God, a lot of times you will be singing things to God that God already knows. And part of that, when we sing, God, you are good and your mercy endures forever, part of that is we are lifting that up to God and saying, God, I want you to know that this is how I feel about you. That's part of it. But the other part of it is, and this is so important, the other part of it is you are verbalizing things in song that you need to remember that you might otherwise forget. When David says, God, you are good and your mercy endures forever, he's not necessarily saying that for God's benefit. Sure, he's showing God worth, but he's also saying, I cannot forget that God is good and his mercy endures forever because I live in a world where it would be easy to forget that. And if I forget that, I won't have better in my life. And so now you have the psalmist who's saying, God, better is one day where you are. Because when, when the psalmist says, in your courts, that's just a, a way of saying, God, where you are. Because in those days, the temple courts, was, this, this was where God's presence was. And so basically the psalmist is just saying, God, where you are, it's better to be one day where you are than a thousand days anywhere else. But the thing about it is, the psalmist is saying, I've got to remember that. Because I live in a world where the message is something completely different. And maybe you can relate to that. Because when you f- turn on the t- television, or you get on the internet, or you, you, you listen to friends who are not God followers, or, or you just kind of hear the messages of the day, if you walk through, through just the, the concourse of life and read what you see on advertisements, the message is not better is one day under the umbrella of God's blessing than a thousand days anywhere else. In fact, it's the opposite of that. And the psalmist is saying, i got to remember this. I have to remember that it would be better to be God's doorman than Satan's CEO. And there's something for us to learn here. 
So we don't just sing these things to God to say, God, I'm going to tell you what you already know. Part of it is, again, that we're saying, God, I want you to know that I feel this way. Part of it is, God, if I forget this, I'm not going to live a better life. And in in Ephesians 5.18, Paul even extends this out because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to what? To one another in songs and hymns and songs from the Spirit. God says, sure, I want you to sing to me, but I also want you to sing to one another. Right? When you come to New Spring and you're lifting up these words to God and you're saying, God, you are good and your mercy endures forever, you're saying it to God. You're also saying it to yourself and you're also saying it to the person who's sitting next to you who might need to hear that message. Because it may have been a tough week. And the psalmist is saying, better comes from being where you are. It sounds like a pretty piece of prose, but it's more than that. It's a lot heavier than that. If there's anything that we can learn from the rich and elite of our culture, if there's anything that we can learn from the educated and well-heeled, if there's anything we can learn from the accomplished and famous, it should be that those things don't necessarily make life any better. In fact, a lot of times, those things make life worse. And the psalmist says, I've discovered in my life that there is only one force that has the power to make my life truly be better, and that is being where God is. One of my, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you here in a minute, and I don't usually read a long passage, but one of my favorite passages in the Bible starts off, and I, I remember, I memorized this in the King James Version, not in the version I'm getting ready to, to read to you, but at the beginning of the passage it says, Praise the, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His many benefits. A lot of you, you know what this is like. You go into a job interview, and they tell you what the wage is going to be for the job, but that's not the whole picture, is it? Right? Because in this day and age in which we live, a much more important conversation is, what are the benefits that come with this job? And what the psalmist says is, I need to bless the Lord, and I, please let me never forget, and this passage says, I, may I never forget the good things he does for me, or may, let, let, may I never forget his benefits. And then he just talks about him. He says, he forgives all my sins. Man, that would be enough, right? We could just end it right there. He forgives all my sins. That would be enough. But then he keeps going on. And he heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death, or he brings me back from death, and he crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness. That means rightness. He actually bestows onto us the ability to live in a right way. And justice to all who are treated unfairly. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love, by the way, did you notice that's the second time he said unfailing love? His unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as east is from west. The Lord's like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. How does God make my life better? God makes my life better by being there for me 
when no one else can, by standing beside me when I go through difficulty. Psalms 23 says, even when I walk through the darkest valley in my life, I won't fear evil because God is with me. Who else can do that for you? God, God makes my life better by showing me what to do when I'm confused. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean onto your own understanding. Who else can you trust to give you the path of life? God makes our life better by forgiving us and cleaning up our act. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Who else can forgive your sins? God, God God makes our life better by letting us talk to him anytime, even if it means we need to admit a mistake to him. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. There we will receive mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Who else will do that for you? He makes our life better because he's provided the sacrifice to make a relationship possible. He's provided a home in heaven for us. He makes our life better because his blood was a currency that paid for our sins past present and future. He makes us, or makes us our life better by loving us when we were unlovable and providing a path for rescue. The Bible says one day is better with God than a thousand days anywhere else. It's better. It's better. And the psalmist says, I've got to remember this. I've got to remember this. But then he takes it a step further. He says, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the high life in the homes of the wicked. Now, the, the doorman at the temple was kind of the low man on the totem pole. It's kind of the, the lowest job you could have. And it involved standing on your feet most of the day. It was an uncomfortable job. could be kind of a rough job because sometimes the, the, uh, you know, the, being the gatekeeper meant having to kind of keep order on the outside of the temple courtyard. And David, here, David is, 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 is the, the king. You've got the psalmist here. Would have been, the psalmist would have been kind of a, a chief musician uh, involved in, in David's work. And, and the psalmist is sitting there in, the, in, in David's palace and thinking about the beauty of working for David and, and David's position. And this is a song that they're going to be singing. And he thinks, I would still rather be the low man on the totem pole and, and be in God's presence and be under the umbrella of God's blessing than to have anything that anybody might offer me away from where God is. Why does the psalmist even go here? What's the point? What's the point of drawing that comparison? I'd rather be God's doorman than Satan's CEO. Why is he even going here? It's because he gets something that so often I underestimate. Maybe, maybe you're like me. Maybe this is something you underestimate as well. But I often underestimate the power of God's blessing in my life. I underestimate what God wants to do for me. I underestimate what God wants to provide for me under the umbrella of his blessing. And the psalmist is saying, I would rather be under the umbrella of God's blessing than anywhere else. Truly, what he's saying is he's making a judgment call. That's what I'd rather is. It's a judgment call between two options when you cannot pick both. And some of you are going to deal with this when you go home this afternoon because somebody told me today that college football is starting, right? Did I hear that right at some level, right? So, you know, some of you, you have picture in picture, and that's one step farther towards being able to do two things at once. Some of y'all may even have two televisions in the same room, and that's just weird, right? <laughs> I came from Oklahoma, you know, where several of my friends, they had uh, two televisions in the living room expressly for the purpose that you needed to be able to see Oklahoma State play on one side, and you needed to be able to say, watch OU on the other side, um, you know. But, but regardless, right, there is that moment where you realize, I cannot do both things at once. And this is, this is what some of us need so much to hear right now. I, I know I need to hear this right now. Is that the psalmist is saying, 
there are going to be opportunities in life, and you're not going to be able to do everything at once. You're not going to be able to take Satan up on his offers, which can be attractive, but they're always a dead end, and take God up on his offer at the same time. You cannot do both. You're going to have to pick. You're going to have to decide what you would rather do. And see, I'm the kind of person, I want to do everything. I want to take everything on. But, but what the psalmist is trying to remind me is, Jonathan, you cannot do everything. You're going to have to decide whose opportunities do you want to take. See, God's goal, because he loves you and because he wants the best for you, God's goal is to keep you under the umbrella of his blessing. And if that is God's goal, you can bet that Satan's goal is to lure you out of that umbrella. Satan wants to get you out of there. And, and so he will bring opportunities your way. See, a lot of times we think of Satan as just somebody who steals. He's somebody who takes. Let me tell you something. Satan will also give. He will also give. He will give you an opportunity if it means that he can get you out of the umbrella of God's blessing. Every time he will do it. All right? And Satan has a secret weapon to get you to choose him. I want to read to you Jeremiah 29 11. It's a familiar verse for many of us. It says, for I know the what? The plans, right, I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, is plans a past tense, present tense, or future tense word? It's future. That is the problem that I have with the Christian life. I'm just telling you right now. Because I'm an impatient person. I do not like talking about things in the future tense. I would much rather talk about something in the present tense. If I have to, I'll talk about the past. But my, my preference is not to have to look to the future, because I want it now. And Satan understands that we are impatient people. He totally gets that. But God says, no, wait a minute. I have plans for you. I have things out in the future. But Satan says, well, what if I were to come and offer you something attractive, but not as good, but attractive now? Because here's the thing. God is absolutely willing to provide you an incredible future at the expense of today's desires and Satan is absolutely willing to provide you today's desires at the expense of an incredible future. The question is, what would you, ra- what would you rather have? Somebody maybe is sitting in this room, and maybe you're a practical person like me. And you say, you know what, Jonathan, I appreciate what you're saying, but I've always wondered, why does God make me wait? If, I mean, if God wants what's best for me, right? And God is all-powerful, and God can do anything that he wants to do, Right? then why, doesn't, why, why does God make me wait for his plan to come to pass? Why does he say it's a plan? Why doesn't he just do it, right? And it hit me as I was studying for this this week. You know, we always talk about the fact that God wants what's best for you. We tell our kids, God wants what's best for you. We tell our friends, God wants what's best for you. But do we even really get that we as human beings don't even really know how to appropriate the word best? Because we don't know everything. And to say that something is best means that there is absolutely no possible better opportunity. There is no possible better outcome. There is no possible better timing. And since we don't know everything, when we talk about best, we talk about best from a human perspective because we'll never even know when was the best time, what was the best opportunity, what was the best outcome. Only God knows that. And so this is why we have to give it up to God and say, God, I will let it be your plan because God says, look, I know that this would be good and that might be good and that might be good, but I know what's best and I need you to wait. But Satan understands that we don't like to wait and he will always bring that hollow dead end opportunity in there. And that's what we talked about, is it not? And we talked about the prodigal son last week. We talked about a guy who said, Dad, 
you know, I'm getting tired waiting for you to die. I'd just as soon you go ahead and give me my money now so I can go do what I want to do. It's that hollow, dead-end opportunity. You say, now, Jonathan, appreciate what you're saying, but I'm a pretty smart person. and I think if, if Satan were to come and offer me a dead-end opportunity, I think I would, you know, first of all, I don't think he would try that on me because, again, I'm pretty smart. And I, I would recognize it, and I would say, you know, this is stupid, and, and I would just move on, and I would wait for God's best, right? I don't think Satan would really try this on me. Well, he tried it on Jesus. If we go back to Matthew chapter 4, we're talking about the temptation of Jesus, and, 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 and Satan takes Jesus. Jesus has been fasting. He hasn't been eating. And, and, and Satan takes him uh, in the wilderness, and there's, a, there's stones there. And he says, why don't you just go ahead and command those stones be made bread? If you command those stones be made bread, you could eat, right? And Jesus resists that temptation. Then, then Satan takes him up to the highest point on the Temple Mount and says, hey, you know what? The, the Scriptures say that if you, you know, if, uh, the angels will rescue you, you won't even be able to dash your foot against a stone. So I tell you what, why don't you just go ahead and jump off the top of the temple, and then the angels will come catch you. Then, you know, if, if you're really God, if you're really God. And Jesus resisted that temptation. But I want you to see what happens in Matthew 4, 8. This is the last temptation. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, I will do what? I will give it all to you. I'll give it all to you. See, I told you, Satan will give. He gives a dead-end, hollow opportunity, but he will give. He says, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. And Jesus said, get out of here, Satan, for the Scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to think about. In that moment, your eternity hung in the balance. Because if Satan could get Jesus to kneel down and worship him. He would never have been able to die on the cross for you. He would never have been able to make a way to heaven for you. He would never have been able to provide a relationship with God for you. And Satan was saying, I will give you all this stuff if you'll just give up what you came here to do. And I'm speaking to somebody in this room, and you have a purpose. God has brought you into this world and challenged you with something that only you can do. Nobody else can do what God has called you to do. And God has brought you into this world and says, I have a purpose for you. And Satan is going to come along and he's going to say, I will give all of this to you if you'll just give that up. And there's some of us who need to say, that is not going to happen. I'm going to hold on to my purpose because better is one day where you are, God, than a thousand days anywhere else. So, What specifically is better about being with God? And what specifically is better about being under the umbrella of his blessing? I want to read this to you out of Psalm 84. We're just moving forward one verse. It says, For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory, and the Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. The Lord is our sun and our shield. Great, right? More symbolism. Just what I was hoping for, right? I promise you're going to love what the psalmist means when he says God is our sun and our shield. Now, when the psalmist talks about the sun, you have to remember, right, that we are talking about a time period when there was no electricity, there was no uh, fossil fuels driving everything. There was, this, this was a time and an age in which everything revolved around when the sun was up or when the sun was down. The sun represented power. And so it is though the psalmist is saying, God, better is 
it, to be one day with you than to be a thousand days anywhere else because you are my power. You're the electricity in my life. You are what fuels me. You are what drives me forward. I remember when I was, when I was younger, as I said, I was homeschooled for quite a while, and um, my dad used to travel a lot more to speak. These days he doesn't travel quite as much for speaking trips, but back then it was a lot. And uh, so we would go with him. And uh, I remember one trip, and I think I may have been about 13, one, one trip we tried to combine a vacation with a speaking trip, right? Because we didn't usually take vacations. So we thought, well, we'll, take, we'll, we'll combine a vacation with a speaking trip. So instead of letting the church that Dad was speaking at provide our hotel, we got our own. And it was kind of, I don't think you would call it a resort, but it was definitely a nicer than normal hotel. I was very excited about that. You know, it's, you know how it is when you're a kid. You're like, oh, I'm staying some way away from home. And, and you know, you, you walk in the hotel, they have this massive indoor pool. You're like, oh, I'm totally headed right there, back there in about 15 seconds. And, and you know, you, you, you walk around, you this is cool, you know, and I was so excited. And then we got to our room and I was changing into my swimsuit when all of a sudden the power went out, right? And something about when the power went out tripped the emergency sensors in the hotel, right? So all of a sudden you have that strobe light I don't know how it had power, nothing else did. You have that strobe light flashing in the room, you know, and the big voice, everybody please evacuate the building, steal things as you leave, hoard food. When you get out of the building, you know, find somebody and hold on tight because the apocalypse is coming. And we all, we're all running down the stairs, right? And um, we get down there and we're standing outside the hotel and the, the, the hotel people are bringing towels and robes and there's some, definitely some people who needed that. And... Um, <laughs> As we're standing there, I'll never forget this, as we're standing there, there was a, a, hotel, six, a motel, hotel 6 across the parking lot, but I remembered seeing that the lights were on. And I thought to myself, right now I would trade my resort hotel room for a room in the Hotel 6 because at least there, there's a television set and the lights are on in the room. You know, I would trade what I've got. And here is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying, you know, Satan may offer me a resort room, but if there's no power there, there's no point in being there. I cannot enjoy something when there's no power. See, I was excited about enjoying that room, but when there's no power, you can't enjoy it. And I'm telling you right now, when you read the stories of celebrities who say, my life is empty, and they have everything in the world that, that should make them happy, but their life is empty. You read people's stories where they have the power and the political position, and they say, but my life is empty. They're not saying their life is empty. They're saying they don't have any power. They're saying, I don't have the power to enjoy what I have. And see, that's the thing. So many of us, man, we're, we're trying so hard to get stuff. You know, it's like if I could just have more money in the bank account so I could pay the bills easier, if, if, if I could just have the better job, if I could just get the stuff that's going to make me happy. Can I just tell you this stuff won't make you happy? What will make you happy is the power to enjoy the stuff you already have. And so what the psalmist is saying is, I need that power. Elsewise, I cannot enjoy what God has for me. Better is one day in God's house than a thousand days anywhere else. And then he says this. He says, God, you're not just my son. You're not just my power. You're not just the electricity, the fuel, the driving force. You're also my shield. When you talk about a shield here, it's probably not what you're picturing. Because if you, if you go back and you're thinking in your mind, you're thinking about a shield, and you're thinking about kind of like the medieval image of the knight in shining armor and kind of the shield that you hold up, it's kind of got the crest thing going on. That is not the biblical shield. We've got to go farther back in time than, than that. 
A shield in this point in time would have been a big thing. It would have been, been kind of a rectangle, but it would have been wide and tall. Sometimes you even needed somebody specifically just to carry your shield for you. And the point of having a shield was that in, in this day and age, I mean, think about this. You're, you're living, for, first of all, you know, you, a lot of people are still living in tents. There are certainly some, some substantial dwelling places. A lot of people are still living in tents. So there is really not a whole lot of safe places to retreat to. When you are in a fight, when you're in a battle, you have to take a safe place with you. And that's what a shield was. A, a shield was a safe place that you take with you. So when the, when, the, when the arrows were coming in and you had no place to retreat to, it's certainly like there was no bunker to go run back to and hunker down. You took that shield that you had and you planted it in the ground, and you would get behind it, and you would hunker down, and at least in that moment, even when there's no escape route, you have no place to run to, you can't move forward because there's people attacking you on the other side, at least there was a place that you could hide and be in a safe place. And what the psalmist is saying is, God, you are a safe place that I can take with me. I don't have to go somewhere specific to be safe. I can go where you send me, and wherever you send me, I take a safe place with me. Because when the arrows start coming in, I don't have a good place to retreat to. I know I can plant that shield, and I can get behind it, and you provide a safe place. And some of you know what that's like, because there's been moments where you've sat in that waiting room in Wesley Hospital or St. Francis Hospital, and you don't know what the news is going to be, and it's one of those things. You're not in church. Maybe you're there on the weekend, and you wish you could be at New Spring, and you think, I wish I could be there. But you know what? I may be in the middle of the intensive care unit waiting room at Wesley Hospital, but I have a safe place with me, because I trust a God that will go with me wherever I go, and I have a safe place here. And you need that. The psalmist is saying, God, you're not just my electricity. You're a safe place I can take with me. The Bible even says in Psalm 46, if you're going through, by the way, if you're going through a tough time, this is a good passage to write down. In Psalm 46, the Bible says, God is our refuge. He's our safe place and strength. He's always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. He's our safe place. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. And then I love what he says here. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear, and he burns the shields with fire. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. And I love what David is saying here. The psalmist is saying, you know what? If God really wants to, he can even break the things I'm afraid of. You know what? And if it's a shield and it's something out of metal, God, if, if God can't break it, he'll burn it. But if there's a moment when, when God needs to come to my rescue, he can even destroy the things that I'm afraid of. Some of us are so worried about things, and we don't even realize that if, God, if, we could, if we could find a way to get under the umbrella of God's blessing, God has the potential to even break or burn the things that we're afraid of. It's huge. And it would be enough, would it not, if that was all that God provided for us? If he was our electricity and our safe place that we could take with us, that would be enough. But the psalmist has more to say. Psalm 84, 11, he says, he gives us grace and glory. Now that word grace means undeserved favor. It means he places in our lives things that we don't deserve, blessings that we don't deserve. And then the cool thing is, he says he gives us those, the, those blessings, the grace and glory. And what that word glory means is the honor. It means to be lifted up. It means he actually gives us honor. Now think about this. The God of the universe who created the world in which we live loves you so much, right, that he is actually willing to give you honor. 
wow, it's just mind-blowing. So we can distill these two thoughts down. He gives us grace and glory. We can distill these two thoughts down to one statement, and that is that God elevates the undeserving. God elevates the undeserving, like this guy right here. When, when God says, when you live under the umbrella of my blessing, advancement is guaranteed. See, when I, I remember when I was in the secular um, business world, whenever I would apply for a job, I was always looking for a job with a great chance of advancement. But God says, listen, if you're working for me, if you're under the umbrella of my blessing, it's not about chances of advancement. It's about a guarantee of advancement. I elevate the undeserving. You don't have to bring the resume. All you have to do is come where I am, be what, part of what I'm doing. And if you come be part of what I'm doing, I will elevate you because that's what I do. Some people in your life are not going to even understand how it happened. They're going to not know how you got the job. They're not going to know how, how you've managed to have the influence that you have. They're not going to understand how you've made the connections that you make. And you just look back at them and say, I just want you to know that God elevates the undeserving. I didn't do it. God did it for me. Why? Because when we're living under the umbrella of God's blessing, that's what he does. God elevates the undeserving. So many of us are so worried about how we're going to make a place for ourselves in this world. But let me tell you what. God found Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, the disciples, all of these guys in less than stellar circumstances. And yet, their names pepper the, 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 the pages of your Bible because God elevates the undeserving. So, the question is, what's better? Because you will be called on that. There will be a moment when you will have to decide. You won't get to make two choices. You're going to have to make one choice. What's better? There's a person in this room who's going to be pressured by their employer to either make a shady deal or walk away from the company. And the psalmist is saying it's better to be unemployed and under the umbrella of God's blessing than outside of God's blessing and rising up through the ranks of a deceptive system. There's a young lady in this room who at some point your boyfriend is going to tell you, if you love me, you'll let me. You just turn your face back to him and you say, if you say that, you're stupid. Right, And then you get in your car and you drive home because it's better to be in your car driving home under the umbrella of God's blessing than it is to be in the arms of a hollow and dead-end opportunity. Right? That's the thing. There's a, there's a married man in this room who cannot control himself on the internet and views things he shouldn't view. And sir, I just want to tell you it is better to live under the umbrella of God's blessing without everything that technology can give you than to have the nicest smartphone in the world and be outside of God's blessing. It's better. Better is one day where God is than a thousand days anywhere else. We just need more Josephs in this world who will say, I'd rather be in prison than be in the arms of a hollow and dead end opportunity. We need more Daniels in this world that will say, it is better to be in a lion's den with God than to be a free man without him. We need more Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes who will say, it is better to be in a fiery furnace walking around with God than to be safe and sound in the cool air Without him, we need more God followers who will remember that it is better to be one day where God is. I'm sticking with God. And we close out our passage in Psalm 8412 because some people are going to say, you know what, Jonathan, I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But right now, I do. I do feel like a doorkeeper. I do feel like I'm low man on the totem pole. I feel like God has not elevated me yet. I feel like I have not reached that place of blessing that you're talking about. And it's hard for me because I, I, I want it now. And I have a hard time with waiting for God's plans. I have a hard time with waiting for best. I have a hard time with waiting for God to make something happen. Psalm 84.12 says this, Lord Almighty, blessed, that means happy, is the one who trusts in you. 
Happiness doesn't come in life because you have the position or the title or the bank account. There are plenty of people that have all of those things and are completely unhappy. Happiness comes when you're willing to place your future in God's hands and say, God, I may be a doorman now, but I trust you. I believe you have good things for me. I believe you want to elevate me. And it doesn't have to be today because I know that when it happens, it will be best. I don't understand that. You understand that. So God, I'm going to trust you. And in the meantime, I'm going to be happy because I know what's true and I know what's real. And what is real is if I trust you. When the time is right, you will lift me up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are a God who elevates the undeserving. Thank you, Father, that you have shown us a path to connect with you. And that in the umbrella of your blessing are things that we can't even imagine that you've prepared for us. And we thank you, Jesus. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. Because if you were to say, you know what, Jonathan, I heard you talk about the fact that God is the power, the driving force in life, and that when, when God's not there, even the stuff that we do have, we can't enjoy. You say, you know what, Jonathan, I just feel like I don't have a connection with that God. I feel like I'm missing that power in my life. But I would like to have it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And if these words really reflect what's going on in your heart, you can say this silently to God, and it will be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know that I do wrong things, and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. Now would you look this way? Everybody in this room looked this way. If you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. In fact, we've even prepared some materials for you. We've got a packet that has a DVD in it, a booklet, and a voucher for a free Bible. We just want to get you started in your relationship with God. So if you prayed that prayer, you can document that on that little card that you got that says talk to us and take that back to guest services, and uh, they will give you that packet, no questions asked. All right, next week we start road trip. Thanks for being here this